0: Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. This is the Bonfire on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning in to the Bonfire Podcast. Welcome I'm here to talk about the important topics and, you know, discussions of life. Life, movies, food, travel, fun, and life lessons. You know, not just life, but life lessons. Two different things. Lord knows. First one of the day. The movie Deepwater Horizon. Yes, I know, it's been out for a while. But the point here is I just saw it, and I also found a review that somebody else wrote that I kind of wanted to nitpick. Wanted to kind of say, well, hold up, here were my thoughts. So for those of you who haven't seen Deepwater Horizon, you should be aware... That's about the uh, Gulf oil spill back in 2014, I believe. And, um, you know, we all remember the news. Sorry, back in 2010. My years are all screwed up here. In 2010, off the uh, Gulf of Mexico. In Louisiana, particularly affected by all the oil that was spilled by BP. The movie, yes, we all know what the ending is. We don't go to see it because we're so surprised, thinking, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I have no idea. We don't go there for that. That is one of the problems that this writer had. It is an article from filmschoolrejects.com, which uh, is an extension of Medium, which I've brought up here before. Anyway, Victor Stiff, he calls himself. Pop culture curator, film and television reviews and analysis. Okay. Well, Vic, here's what he says. It's it squanders all of its assets. He basically says, look, we already know what's going to happen, so it's not very surprising. You know, there's not a whole lot of stress and suspense. Because you're not questioning what's going to happen. You already know what's going to happen. They say, or he says, the actors were eh, they're all right. They're not too all that deep, so you don't feel these emotional connections to them. So as you're watching, and of course, you know, we're all affected whenever... Even in a movie, you see human beings being killed and injured and maimed. You're all, you, It kind of tugs at your heartstrings. He says, yes, of course that happened in this movie. But it could have been even better if they had developed the characters a little more. If they'd been a little more original or emotional... He went into those kinds of details, saying like, this was an okay movie, and that it could have been amazing. So for him, uh, Victor is mostly saying this was a squandered opportunity, from the most that I can tell from this article. But let me see one of the uh, points that he makes here, bringing it up. It's inexcusable that the film packs so little dramatic heft. During the first half of the film, a large portion of the dialogue consists of technobabble. Yeah, that's true. I actually had a hard time keeping up. Men and women buzz around the rig, reading meters, spewing difficult-to-follow gobbledygook, reciting mechanical details that doesn't even help us empathize with these people once their lives are on the line. Sure, we care about the characters so far as we aren't all sociopaths, and we don't want to see human beings die. As far as movie characters go, they feel disposable. Deepwater Horizon could load up on drama and tension by slowing down, locking in on just a few characters, and really fleshing them out. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough, Victor. I did feel some of the dialogue was pretty quick. I speak English, for God's sake, and I was raised in it. But I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking, ooh, I'm I'm not really getting a lot of this dialogue. I either can't hear you, where that's the audio engineer and the editor, their responsibilities, and the director, to make sure that the audience can just understand what is going on. That wasn't just the techno babble. That was, I think you spoke a little too quickly in that scene. I'm not sure what you got at, but I'm going to assume you said this. Okay, we're moving on. I felt like, yeah, that did happen sometimes. Pacing could have been a little better in terms of the dialogue. Now, I thought the pacing was perfectly fine as a plot where, yes, I knew what was going to happen, but I was still on the edge of my seat. Sitting there thinking, like, okay, when's it going to happen? And lots of little things would kind of pique your interest and say, ooh, that was it. Oh, nope, nope, not, not yet. It's not the, uh, the, the big moment, the climax. Not yet. So I was, a, I was suspensed for half the movie. So I did like how the movie did that. Half of it, about half of it. It's kind of leading up. You're kind of getting to know some of the characters and getting to know almost a day-to-day experience on the rig. And you're like, okay, cool, cool, get into it. And I feel there was more suspense because I knew what was coming. I was just waiting for it to happen. So I'm kind of watching all the scenes going like, ooh, okay, okay, I'm going to keep that in mind. All right, well, that happened over there. Okay, did they notice that? And that put me on the edge of my seat, even though I knew what was going to happen. As far as emotion, um, yeah, I wasn't really emotional until the end of the movie where people are dying. And some make it back to their families. And, yeah, people are killed and hurt. And this wasn't a fictional story. This actually happened. So that, to me, brings a little more emotional gravitas. The fact that I'm like, yep, this happened. Yeah, people died. This is real. I can feel a lot less for a fictional character because I can just say, well, you never existed. I don't care. The actor can be doing a great job. The actress can really get me going and thinking like, ooh, wow, that was a great scene. You really, you really had me convinced. But when it comes to a real movie, something that's based on actual events... Based on true happenings, then yeah, that tends to kind of get the waterworks a little bit. You get a little choked up. You go, yep, this is is pretty good. So Mark Wahlberg, yes, was the main character in it. Uh, I like him. I think he's pretty good. He likes to to be in Lone Survivor and uh, what else was he? I'm trying to think. He likes to be in those kinds of uh, military movies because he respects the military. And he wanted to be here in Deepwater Horizon. Now, incidentally, before the movie, you also saw a preview for something called Patriot's Day. And that has to do with the Boston uh, Marathon bombings, and Mark Wahlberg is in it. So there you go. Here are two stories right now, Deepwater Horizon and Patriot's Day. Two news stories is what they were. They're not fictional. Uh, There may be some fictional elements, as there always are. But these were stories that the whole country saw. That's why I liked Deepwater Horizon, because I saw it. It happened more or less on my doorstep. I live here in Texas. But I didn't know anybody personally who was affected. Um, I certainly was not personally affected. So I saw it all happen from a distance, you know, the TV screen. So to watch the movie, this added a little bit more of a human element to the story. That's why I like Deepwater Horizon. It was something that I thought was like, okay, it happened, it was years ago, it was from a distance. Then when you watch the movie, it kind of brings a whole new element to it, it feels like, okay, that was a little more personal. You feel a little closer to the people who were affected, and the people who died. That's what brought me into it, that's why I liked it. So Patriot's Day, which is a whole other story, (laughs) I did see the Boston bombings happen from a distance, and I was there on the news day that it happened, and we had a whole... Hell of a day reporting on it and getting all the updates, and it was a long day, pretty terrible day. But again, I saw it from a distance. I was not in Boston. I can't even begin to imagine the people that were there, what they went through. So, my argument, the bonfire argument, is these kinds of movies are good, even though you know what the hell is going to happen. It's meant to bring you further into an emotional moment to say, look, we realize most of these people were not here. Everybody's going to see this movie. This is meant to help you humanize this, the news story that you saw from a distance. So while Victor here said, oh, yeah, kind of more or less a missed opportunity, it was okay, the second half of the film where there is the uh, the big explosion and things really start to hit the fan, you're still kind of confused, there's a little bit of emotion, heart-stopping explosions, which are great, but then you're kind of like, well, okay. It wasn't a super great action film, and it wasn't super emotional either. So what was it? That was Victor's problem. He was a little little disappointed. He says this, Deepwater Horizon doesn't wallop you with a clenched fist so much as it slaps you with a soggy napkin. If you just want to sit back and watch things go boom, you could find a lot worse movie than this. However, if you're looking for something more engaging than this shamefully average time waster, do yourself a favor and skip Deepwater Horizon. Okay, so there you go. Victor, I respect your opinion, because I do. I like uh, movie reviews for people to say, well, what did you like about it, or what didn't you? So, I wasn't expecting some Academy Award-winning movie. I already knew the ending. I'm more or less familiar with the story. So, yeah, not there wasn't going to be a whole lot of surprise, but I still wanted to be you know, driven further, deeper, more emotionally into the story that actually happened. This puts some of the faces and the emotion to that new story now. So I like that. Hollywood being, I think, a little more original. Rather than doing all these sequels and all these book adaptations, some are okay, some are just fantastically terrible. Uh, for you to take a news story that actually happened and say, you know, let's make it a little, uh, a little emotional now. Let's bring a human element to it. It's just like with Flight 93, which I never saw, but that was the point of it. In any 9-11 movie, for that matter, we all saw it from a distance, most of the country. Hell, even New Yorkers. They, They were there, but I'm sure they also saw movies that helped humanize and, you know, bring it closer. Closer to home by watching these movies. That's why I like them. They're based on true events, and it brings a whole other element to the story. So can I say that Deepwater Horizon's Bonfire recommended? Um, hmm. I will say yes. I will say yes. Even though, like I said, it's been out for a while. In today's day and age, you don't have to go see them in the movies. They do rather quickly make it on their, make their way to Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, wherever. DVD. However you want to do it. Bonfire does recommend that you check it out. Because yes, we all know the story. That's not the point. The point is to kind of... Revisit it, and let's remember the fact that that tragedy happened. And, okay, these are also meant to say, let's not do that again. Whatever the hell happened. You know, faulty machinery that people just wouldn't repair, and being a little too ballsy, thinking like, oh, we got this, we can do this. No, you know, when people's lives are on the line, you shouldn't be that um, foolhardy. Don't just jump into something. When you're in the middle of the ocean, people's lives are on the line. Don't be stupid. Uh... That is one of the lessons I thought I took from the movie. Saying, okay, people's lives are on the line are far more important than any extra bit of money you think you might save by cutting corners. So don't do it.
0: This is The Bonfire, on demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. No
2: upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after
1: which fees apply.
0: This is the Bonfire, on demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Here's your host, Andrew Herzog. All
1: right, now time for a documentary review. Bonfire recommends you go to Netflix and check out the documentary from 2014 called Poverty, Inc. It's about an hour and a half. That, I think, is the perfect uh, length for a movie not too long. It's not too short. Um, The synopsis is the uh, uh, filmmaker Michael Matheson Miller investigates the complex global industry of foreign aid. After watching it, I wouldn't say this was anti-capitalism by any means. No. It's more about the good intentions that eventually do get derailed. The good intentions of after World War II, the Marshall Plan, Americans... In America trying to put Europe back together. When we went in and kicked Germany's ass, we said, now we have to rebuild. We can't just walk away. So let's try to come up with ways to get them to help themselves back up on their own feet, and then let's get the hell out of here. Let's go back to our own country. So, Poverty Inc., kind of detailing that past, saying, like, okay, see, things, the best intentions, okay? Every time. Human beings do want to help other human beings. So when there are earthquakes in Haiti, India, Fukushima, Japan, natural or human disasters. You know, it's natural and good for other human beings to see that and say, we want to help. What can we do? The quickest and easiest way, yeah, is to donate money or your clothes or food to any number of organizations that are out there to help. But the problem is now there are so many, and in this particular case, Haiti, which is what the uh, documentary does spend a lot of time on, shows, look, um, all this effort to try to help is actually making it worse because you have all these organizations going to Haiti and doing the work for the Haitians. What we should be doing more is still treating them like human beings, saying, like, yes, you've been through a terrible time, hell of a time. But instead of giving you handouts, certainly handouts without a deadline, you know, a termination point, let's find ways to get you working again. Because then you can support yourself and your family, and you're good to go. You have your human dignity back. Nobody wants to be a beggar for life. I think that was one of the quotes in the documentary that I really respected. Uh, Someone down in Haiti, I feel like he was, maybe it was in Africa, because they also mentioned Africans as well. They said, do you realize all these commercials and movies and celebrities that try to victimize or make the uh, third world look like all victims? They're all stupid human beings who can't help themselves, so we must step in and do it for you. Okay, yeah, that's exactly how it's been portrayed to me over the years, seeing commercials saying, a dollar from you can save a child's life. Can give them four meals so they can live another day. Okay. Buy a pair of shoes so they can buy a pair of shoes. Uh, it's a good thought. So we're not knocking, and the documentary says that. Like We're not trying to knock the people who have been helping this whole time. But it's certainly time to rethink. Well, now it's kind of an industry. You got the taxpayers that are giving their money to these NGOs, non-governmental organizations, I believe. And then those kind of give it to the governments of these different parts of the world, not the people. And then the governments kind of squabble it and screw it up. And then maybe some of the people you're actually trying to help maybe get some of the stuff you thought you were, they were, you were giving to them. Okay. So far diluted that you're not doing as much good as you think. And that you're, per, you're uh, perpetrating, perpetrating? perpetuating the, the situation. You're keeping them in poverty by giving them and just, uh, what's the stupid word? Oh my goodness, this is what happens when you do an entire day's work and you're just so exhausted. But hey, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Because I'm here to talk about the important things. The uh, subsidies, there it is. When you subsidize the country with all these goods, you know, rice, shoes, clothes, and you're just giving it to them for free, the people in that country who were trying to make a living selling all that stuff are now pushed out of business. Because the people are going to say, why am I going to pay X amount of money? When foreign nations are just sending me free stuff, I think that's natural. If that was happening to Americans and I'm sitting here minding my business and all of a sudden free stuff starts coming in and I'm getting a piece of it, then yes, I'm going to be disinclined to work or pay for it. I'm going to say, hey, I get this for free, so I'll just take that. That's going to negatively affect the country and their economy, and they're not going to be able to pick themselves up. So instead of just giving out all this great stuff, which, hey, I like where your heart is, and that's what the documentary makes clear, your heart's in the right place, but let's just use our brain for a second. Maybe we should probably rethink this and find an even better way to help these people. And so they suggest, yeah, give them jobs. Let's find ways to get their economies going. So let's kind of pull out all all these handouts, which maybe when you first started were a good idea, but certainly not now, certainly not anymore. Let's look for a better way to help them help themselves. So I actually really enjoyed the documentary. I liked the messages. The messages was, let them have their dignity. The dignity of work. Because these people in the third world aren't stupid. They're not lazy. They're just in the third world. They don't have the luxuries that we do, which is unfortunate. So let's begin that process. And don't just give them stuff. Say, hey, let us help you. Help yourself. Here is a, uh, some training. Here's some education. Here is, um, I don't know, 10 grand Go start your own company. I'll help you start your own company, your own business. And then you can run it yourself. And then you'll be self-sufficient. That's what I like to hear. People who are motivated to take care of themselves and their families. And everyone could stand on their own two feet. By overburdening these countries with all this free stuff, you're making it worse. That's what I thought. The documentary did a good job of explaining that. Kind of bringing in a new element that I'd never thought of. Saying like, oh yeah. These people, they're certainly not stupid. They just have a more difficult life than I do. So, okay, what can I do to help? And I don't have an answer because I don't want to just give money and clothes and shoes the old way. I don't think that's the best thing for them anymore. So I don't have an answer, but there's definitely got to be a way to help, you know, jolt their economy going. By buying their stuff, whatever it is that they're selling, somehow educating them to give them basic skills so that they can have an economy of their own. And then you can trade with them. And now, of course, with the advent of the internet, you can say, hey, if you've got internet, psh, I'll buy your, your pottery. I'll buy the jewelry that you're making, the, the clothes that you're making, or the knickknacks. I don't care. It's like, if I got money and I think you're giving me quality craftsmanship, I'll buy it. I don't care. I'd love to support you. I'd love to support anybody who puts you know, thought and care into their product into what they're selling so that they can pay their bills and take care of their family like a respectable human being so there you go bonfire does recommend bonfire recommended poverty inc up on uh, netflix check it out hour and a half short and sweet good stuff this is the bonfire on the blaze radio network on demand don't miss the morning blaze
2: with doc and skip what (laughs)
0: Did you just cluck like a chicken? Okay, Elizabeth. I know you have nowhere else to go with this. There's only so many things you can say in your feigned outrage against Donald Trump. But you cluck? She She doesn't know the rule of politics? No hats, no clucking like a chicken. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday morning, 6 to
1: 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. This is The Bonfire. On demand on
0: the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Alright, a couple weeks ago I wrote an article up on Medium, under my name, Andrew Herzog, called Esports, the $500 million cash cow. Basically, Esports is a it's a force to be reckoned with. 70 million plus fans around the world who tune into competitive gaming, they're going to generate nearly half a billion dollars by the end of 2016. Uh, that is insane and brilliant at the same time. I, could, I, I can't believe that there are millions of people across the world who could possibly be so invested in something as useless as a video game. Now, I'm not admonishing them for their enthusiasm, because I used to be a gamer myself. I understand the appeal. My college days were filled with it. Hours and hours. Freshman year, that's all I did. Sometimes I went to class, and sometimes I did my homework. <laughs> so, Lord knows. I used to be one of them. Nevertheless, to some people, video games are an essential part of their life. You know, much like people all over the world who draw their identities from their favorite sports leagues and teams, it's the same thing here. So do the gamers. They can't help themselves. It's just one of their obsessions. So someone who's obsessed with football is just like someone who's obsessed with video games, uh, competitive video games. So yeah, these eSports, they're different. But not by much, because the only difference between traditional sports competitions and eSport competitions are the venue and the athletes. So rather than spectating a team of physically adept individuals, Competing against one another in the real world. You're seeing a team of mentally adept individuals compete against one another in the virtual world. So, yes, there's a lot of sitting, but (laughs) there is a Vice documentary about this stuff. And, um, let's see, I think it's about an hour, hour ten, something like that. And I'm going to play some portions of it right now because I watched the documentary and thought, first of all, this is fascinating. Second, wow. Wow. I think this is a testament to capitalism and the world that we live in now. If there's a market for it, you'd be stupid not to try to cash in on it. There is a culture out there of video gamers, millions of people. And you could be anybody who can mock them and say, well, LARPing, (laughs) ha, 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 and people who sit on their ass all day and just play video games for uh, 12, 24 hours at a time, and they do nothing but drink energy drinks, eat pizza, and sit around all the time. Okay, well... To each his own, because they're going to look at you and say, you're a chump for being so invested in the Green Bay Packers. You know, everybody is going to do their own thing. For the people who have joined the esports industry and are making money from it, I say, good for you. Bravo. Because you guys realized that there was a market for it. That's called the free market. If all of a sudden there develops some sort of midget competition where you're going to watch them wrestle and then... Something like a Hunger Games midgets, okay, then whatever. If there's a market for it, then go for it. Do whatever the hell you want with your money and your time. So eSports, I just thought when I first saw it, I thought, what? This can't be real. Oh, but it's real. Here, let me go ahead and uh, let me play the first piece here and let them explain it.
2: There are more League of Legends players in the world than there are people in France. With 67 million monthly users, it's the most popular eSport. And out of that 67 million, 10 of the best players were about to compete in this stadium. The match was between two Chinese teams, Starhorn Royal Club and the much-feared OMG, nicknamed the Forces of Darkness by the Chinese media. Before each game starts, Players' portraits come up on a big screen with their gamer aliases underneath. Names like Uzi, Looper, and a guy known simply as Cool. Both groups would already be taking home at least 150 k but only one would win the chance to play Samsung White in the finals for a million dollars.
1: All right, there you go. Uh, These teams of, I think, maybe five to six guys who are, yes, sitting on their computers... And there's an entire audience sitting there, watching them sit there and play their game. They have the opportunity through these competitions and tournaments to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yes, there are people out there who will go to these stadiums, some of them small, some of them massive. Pay money to spend their day at a essentially a convention. You're with all these like-minded people, so that makes people feel good. And you're walking around, having a good time, finding things that you just show interest in, and everybody else is smiling, also having a good time. Then you eventually make your way, and you can sit and watch uh, uh, video game competitions. There are people who like to do that. Okay. Well, obviously, millions of people. Most of them happen to be European and Asian because the North American industry is not really there yet. Uh, South Korea is the biggest e-sports video game culture that there is. So, so like the narrator just said, this one, this particular competition was between two Chinese teams. Well, look, they knew already one of those teams was going to come out of it with at least a hundred grand. It's not bad. Hundred grand divided by uh, five. Let's make it six guys. Uh, so a little under twenty grand each. And what they do though is they all live in a house together, sort of like a uh, like a dorm. And all they do for at least I, I think twelve hours a day is sit and play games. Now, this one is called League of Legends. It's a particular video game. That's what they play, and that's the biggest eSport competition. I'm sure there are other ones for all sorts of other games I've never even heard of, but League of Legends is the biggest one, and that's what they do with their lives. They're choosing to spend their time and their mental energy on these computer games, thinking strategy. Hey, what can I do here? How Maybe work on my reflexes so I can be even quicker. Yeah, there's training to a degree. It might be baffling for you and me, but hey. If that's what they want to do with their time and they seem to have this natural ability for great reflex and strategy and keeping cool in the moment when people are shooting you, whatever. I don't know. All I know is I can respect the emergence of that culture into certainly mainstream in Europe and Asia, not yet here in North America, although I will argue that's on its way. That's a great industry because that's just looking at the culture and saying, where are people spending their money? Oh, they're spending it on video games. How many? Oh, millions of people. Oh, okay. So why don't we uh, start coming up with tournaments? You know, just like the uh, NFL, they have lots of uh, competitions and games and people come together and they spectate. Well, why don't we just have people spectate dudes pushing buttons? Okay. Is there a market for that? Yeah, there is, actually. That's what's so fascinating. And they go there, they can buy all the sorts of like just paraphernalia and swag, and they just absorb it all. They live in it, they love it. And they, all, they make money. People are willing to spend their money, and people are making money. That's the way the free market works. That's uh, capitalism, and I like it. Just like I choose to spend my money on food, if you want to make me some food and I like it, I will give you my money. That is the agreement that we have. If you want to entertain me with the hockey game, And I'm spectating. Yes, uh, like I said, physical competition in the real world versus me watching uh, 12 guys play a video game together. Okay, but I just choose to watch a physical game rather than a virtual game, but to each his own. So there's nothing wrong with it. Let's go to part two here and see what more there is.
2: The Western world, with its slow internet speeds and prejudices about nerd culture is still playing catch-up to Asia in the global esports scene. In fact, they're so far behind that their players are referred to as foreigners, even by other Western commentators. But despite being seen as outsiders, Europe is a thriving esports hub with its own brand of celebrity culture and die-hard fans. It's Sunday afternoon, we're at the London Olympic Park. Two years ago, this was built for actual sports, and now two years later, we're here in the same stadium watching eSports. I'm not sure it's quite the athletic legacy that Boris Johnson had in mind, but it's kind of ironic that there's people in that building playing a virtual version of football.
1: So, yes, in case you didn't get that, that is in London... And a stadium that was initially used for the Olympics for physical competitions. You know, the traditional sports sense. And now, on occasion, they use it for electronic sports. The electronic on the e-web. So there you have it. What the hell? (laughs) You're getting thousands of people paying good money to sit and watch someone sit and play. Okay. If you want to do that, go right ahead. Uh, As bizarre as it is, it's kind of beautiful at the same time. (laughs) Being able, I've said it already. There really are no more words for it. Uh, This last part here, it's all about South Korea. Let me uh, go ahead and play it.
2: The biggest game in esports history was only days away. The League of Legends World Finals. Seoul are these things called PC bongs. And if you're not a gamer, you're not from Korea, you probably don't know what those are, but they're basically internet cafes with really nice computers where you can spend all day gaming. Whereas in the West, we're more inclined to stay at home and play console games. PC bongs are a massive part of Korea's youth culture. It's not just about having fun either. The fact that there's a gaming cafe on every street corner is one reason that Korea is the dominant global force in esports. It's in these PC bombs that the country's future stars will be born. Right away, you can see this has got everything you need for a whole day of gaming. You've got no windows, so there's little to remind you of the outside world. Energy drinks go with gaming, just like Wii goes with reggae, and here you can get any kind of energy drink you want. And if you get a bit peckish, dried squid is only a few steps away
1: so there you have it south korea which is the great antithesis to north korea what are they doing they're choosing to involve their culture with everything video games so much so that the politicians of south korea some of them are trying to pass legislation to keep kids from playing so many video games I believe what it was is if you're under a certain age, you can't access these uh, internet games after a certain time. Because like you said, uh, in America, there's, we do a lot of console games that, yes, are connected to the internet, but these PC bongs where people show up like in an internet cafe and say, I'm going to log on and play this online game, League of Legends, or anything else like it, and just sit here for hours and hours and hours. Okay. If their youth and their country and they choose to do that, okay, i Is that really the end of the world? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm sure plenty of other countries in the world look at us and say, why the hell are you so obsessed with football? I don't know. I'm from here, and I don't understand why some people are. I watch the occasional football game. I do root for the Dallas Cowboys, but I'm not obsessed. I am more on board with the Dallas Stars and hockey, but even then, I don't watch most games. I have other things I'd rather do with my time. My time is very valuable to me. My watching a game will not affect the outcome. I don't care what you say. So if these uh, youth or anybody else, and of any age, want to spend their time playing video games, okay, then if you still do your job and you're choosing to spend your money on that hobby, then go for it. That's your decision. I don't think that's going to rip the culture apart or anything and make some sort of lazy, stupid zombie generation. Some people, of course, the extremes, say those kinds of things. That like, oh, we have a stupid generation. And they're just, they're so self-absorbed and that's all they want to do. How how can you don't want to get out and see the world? I mean, I think there's a balance. I still have video games. I just don't play them as often as I used to. I do prefer to get out in the real world and travel, eat, have great experiences, do things like uh, archery, (laughs) which I thought about the other day. I thought, you know what? I've never gotten a bow and arrow and shot it for fun that's i think that's cool that's cool because it's unusual at least it's unusual for me so i look for novel experiences which at some day that's going to be a video game that's going to be like let me put on this stupid dinky headset and be in the virtual reality that's that's going to happen because it's going to be novel uh to me so there you have it the respect of esports that i have i don't understand it but i don't have to i can just say hey good for capitalism good for the world to Play to what the people want and to give them a service. So, these people who are playing games anyway, someone whoever the hell invented these competition ideas and started organizing it all saw an opportunity. Great, good for you because you were able to tap into that and now you're about to make a billion dollars by the end of 2016. And it's going to keep rising because that's what technology does. And eventually, as America catches up, as we are the foreigners compared to the pioneers over in Europe and Asia. I think there's gonna be more money to be made it's gonna be crazy just like the NFL is trying to expand kind of into London and other parts of the world that way it's not just an American sport uh esports are gonna do that there's gonna be new ways just think about these possibilities though that's what the future is things that you're like what the hell people are having competitions of video games and there's money involved and there's a culture and stadiums are being rented out that is baffling and just practically absurd But I'd say that's the real world that we are now heading to. So just embrace it. Just understand that that's coming. And when it's here, you can say, all right, okay, cool. I can understand. There's money to be made here. Maybe I can get me a piece of it. The Bonfire,
0: only on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Don't miss the Chris Salcedo Show.
0: These
2: extremist liberals, they despise that Constitution. They have been working for decades To rid America of that Constitution, because you know what that Constitution does? It ties their hands. It stands in their way from exploiting
0: us. And they will de-emphasize the founding document every chance they get, as Mrs. Clinton just did. The Chris Salcedo Show, weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. The Blaze Radio Network on demand. The
1: Bonfire.
0: Here's your host, Andrew Herzog.
1: Howdy, welcome to the D-Block. From Business Insider, or technically Tech Insider, same sort of company. <laughs> Schools around the U.S. are finally pushing back their start times, and it's working. Uh, this article, explaining the importance of no longer starting school at 745, 8, 815, whatever, what have you, whatever it is that you did. A, uh, a town in New York, Dobbs Ferry decided to say you know what let's push it a little later let's see what happens we have a suspicion this might be good but let's actually give it an experiment let's give it a try so last september the school district joined a small but growing cluster of schools around the u.s that have started pushing back their middle and high school start times in an effort to combat student grogginess now of course there are people who say hey suck it up it's called being an adult that's the real world okay I can understand and somewhat agree with that mentality, just like I can understand and somewhat agree with the other one of, well, why don't we just push it a little further end, or further back? Ooh, is that the end of the world? Instead of starting at eight and ending at three, why don't we start at nine and end at four? Let's give it a try. Let's actually experiment and see if it gets better. If it does, then let's try it again and see if there's a consistency here. And if it is, then let's stick with it. I respect that mentality. There's always room for improvement. So just because you've been doing it like this for years, decades even, doesn't mean you should keep doing it that way. Yes, I understand the importance of tradition, and that applies to certain things, but when it comes to non-sacred institutions like a school, a public school, okay, I think you're fine. You can push the start time an hour later. Give it a shot. So even just starting 30 minutes later and ending 15 minutes later, at the end of the day, these schools in the uh, Dobbs Ferry area have experienced tremendous benefits, the uh, superintendent said. <coughs> Excuse me. The superintendent says it was clear from both the parents and the kids overwhelmingly that the mornings were just less stressful. At night, the report said that going to bed at the same time, even though the new schedule freed up an extra 45 minutes, and once they get to school, they felt more alert just by getting up later than usual. and Or, if you got up at the same time, you just gave yourself an extra 30 minutes, 45 minutes to just wake up to get your prefrontal cortex churning so that you can actually start learning. After all, that's what you're there for in school, to learn. If it's too early in the morning and you didn't get enough sleep, and it's just the sunlight hours, it's before sunrise it's going to be really difficult to learn. So why don't we just push it an hour later? I'm just saying I like the the idea of pushing the boundaries, thinking, let's give it a shot. Why not? Let's see what happens. Because it's not the end of the world. Article again is called, Schools around the U.S. are finally pushing back their start times, and it's working. I will share this on our social medias, in case you all want to check it out. But there are downsides. Some people have negative responses. They say parents have the option to drop their kids off at school before the first bell so that they can eat breakfast, Eat breakfast, charge their devices, or just hang out. That's what some of the parents say, like, oh, that's good. Others found challenges with athletics and after-school clubs. You know, teams had no trouble getting to away games. Now they have less time to get there, and you have to deal with the worse traffic because the school, you know, the classes are no longer ending at 3, they're ending at 3.30 or 4. So they're saying, well, it kind of maybe our evenings are... Being a little rushed. That is a, that's a concern that was brought up. Okay. And once they finally get home, many say that they have less time for all the homework that they've already been assigned. So, that's understandable. There's going to be pros and cons for anything that you do. I just found this article interesting by saying, hey, here's a school in a small town. You know, it's not a federal mandate, but just a school, uh, school in its town doing its own thing, saying, well, let's push it back. 30 minutes. Let's give that a shot. See what happens. And that's based off some studies that say, okay, later in the day, your brain might be more primed and ready to learn and actually maintain, retain the things that you're learning. So let's push it back. Let's see what happens. I can can get behind that. Just like I can get behind the fact that maybe we should have more siestas. Do your morning work and then take your lunch break. Maybe, yeah, make it an hour. So if you finish eating in 15 minutes, then go take a 30-minute nap. Seriously, a nap. Get away from work. Get away from your desk. Drive away. Do something. Whatever relaxes you. And then come back for your afternoon shift. Break your day into two pieces like that. Maybe some companies say, hey, we actually just choose to work from 10 to 3 instead of 9 to 5. So it forces people to be more efficient during their day, and they get to come in later and leave earlier. Whatever. I'm all for... Companies in the cities choosing what's best for them, saying like, well, let's give this a shot. There's always room for improvement. I like experimentation like that. Just because you've been doing it one way doesn't mean you need to keep doing it. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for tuning into The Bonfire for this week. Um, I really do appreciate There was someone who um, on Twitter reached out to me and said, hey, just found you, just found the bonfire. And I have to say, this is refreshing. Thank you for doing it. Well, no, no. Thank you. Thank you for telling me that. Because there are times I often wonder, does anybody else share my thoughts? Not like on movies and things like that. I mean, just the general premise of this show. Saying, isn't the world full of enough politics? Aren't there enough talking heads? Okay, then let's find something that we just enjoy and we're not ripping each other's throats out. But finding ways that we can get to deeper issues in a more fun way. Maybe we can actually find some common ground. If you want to talk about movies in the context of morals and viewpoints, I I can get behind that. To me, that's more interesting than just having this straight-up debate where you're bitching at one another and really nothing gets done. It is Jeremy on Twitter. He said, Just started listening to The Bonfire. I've heard you on The Morning Blaze, and I liked what you had to say. Thanks for giving us a break. From the normal grind of politics, it's quite refreshing. Thank you, Jeremy. Those are words of encouragement. I am an individual who does thrive on words of affirmation, positive feedback. Hell, even negative feedback. I'll take that because it's good to, it's good to know. I, I, I need that kind of information. If it's sucking, I need to know. If it's going average, I need to know. If it's tremendous, uh, tremendous believe me, I need to know. So I've gotten some of those before on Twitter, SoundCloud, Facebook, people reaching out. And I thank you. I really do because I'm sitting here talking to myself (laughs) and I will, I will find good people to interview. That takes time, time and energy. I want to find the right people. I'm not going to interview Bob from Utah because who the hell is he? I want to actually bring some legitimate guests to the show to share their non-political inputs. I think that's going to be a bit more, maybe, nichey than you think. I'm also not looking to mimic or copy what other people have already done with guests. So I'm, I'm finicky like that. Rest assured, please stick with me. And I like these debates with myself, as stupid as that sounds. Talking through these movies and documentaries and trying to share them with you. That way, we can discuss them. And then you can bring them to your friends and family, your circles, and say, Hey, uh, I heard this the other day, and I found this article. What are your thoughts, Jan? What are your thoughts, Cindy? I just named two Bradys. I don't know where that came from. That's what happens when you're tired. That is what happens when you're tired. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to The Bonfire. This is Andrew Herzog out.
0: This is The Bonfire on the Blaze Radio Network.